It's my great pleasure and honor at the Bob and Soledad Hearst Lecture Series to introduce the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, been the Majority Leader since uh, January. Uh, and already, things are getting better. The economy's improving. Uh, <laughs> the weather is perfect. You know, it's just amazing. Because my view is we all got elected. We all came there to, to try to make a difference. This is a legislative body. The way you do something in a legislative body is you offer your ideas and you get a vote on it. As I indicated earlier, I felt we had an obligation to look for the things where there was a potential for agreement, even though we had plenty of things we disagreed. Look for the areas where there's potential for agreement and try to advance the ball, the ball, the ball. My party, unfortunately, owns the brand of government shutdown. It's a bad brand. The real problem confronting the country is not the discretionary budget. It's the entitlement. entitlement, entitlement. Let me just make sure everybody knows what we're talking about here. We're talking about Medicare. We're talking about Social Security. Very, very popular and important programs. The presidency in our system is absolutely essential. He's the only person of the 330 million of us who can sign something into law. And the only one who can deliver enough members of his party to vote for a deal that he makes to make it possible. A government big enough to spend $4 trillion a year is a government that needs to be influenced by somebody. If you allow the people who make the rules, which are those of us who get to vote, to write the rules, we'll fight our enemies and support our friends. Well, I certainly wouldn't argue that the climate isn't changing. I think it is. The question is, if this is a global problem, how much impact are we going to have and at what price on our own Finally, let me say, our country going down this path all by itself is probably not going to have much of an impact on a global problem. Uh, my party does really good with white people, and I'm proud of that. Proud of that. Proud of that. Because I always like to remind people that winners make policy, and losers go on to some other line of work. But I, it certainly hasn't been helped by having the first African American president be a Democrat. That do us much good on that front. Obviously, obviously, obviously. Unfortunately, everybody's definition of truth is not the same. I think what's different now is with cable television and the internet, you're getting hounded all the time with arguments. And one of your natural reactions to all these arguments is, why can't you people get along? You said, you know the Americans, they always do the right thing. After they've tried everything else first. You know, we don't have a bunch of Americans trying to leave this country. Uh, and if I may start with that, you were known as Mr. Obstructionist and trying to prevent Obama from getting a second term. But there has actually been a serious sea change, especially in the Senate, uh, in the past year. You've gone back to the regular order of business. You're getting bills passed. You're letting committees, but Democrats vote on amendments. Was that a conscious decision? And do you think the mood in the Senate has changed? Well, well, clearly, <clears throat> clearly we've got a <clears throat> Senate that's up and working again. But let me just first say, with regard to the the label I was given when I was the minority leader, it's worth uh, pointing out there were three major bipartisan agreements during the period when I was in the minority, and um, Joe Biden and I did all three of them. The Bush, the, the two-year extension of the Bush tax cuts in December of 2010, the budget. Control Act in August of 2011, and the fiscal cliff deal, New Year's Eve of 2012. All of those were bipartisan agreements that were significant negotiations between the White House, uh, Biden as the president's uh, designee, and the leader of the minority at the time in the Senate. Did we have our differences? You bet. But 
there were opportunities to make progress with the country, even when I was the leader of the minority, and so I, I did take advantage of them. With regard to, to being the majority leader. Let me real quickly yeah. ask you, if you were a Democrat, would you vote for Joe Biden for the next nomination? <laughs> I, I don't want to get him in trouble. <laughs> the, uh, you know, uh, Joe was not a free agent. The president obviously knew what he was uh, doing, but um, it was helpful. He was very transactional, very interested in getting to an outcome, and very uh, understanding of places I couldn't go, and I knew where he couldn't go, and that's the way you end up uh, being able to advance the ball. Look, I, let me just point out the obvious. The American people seem to like divided government, because we have it a lot. In fact, we've had divided government more often than not since World War II. So what are the American people saying when they elect divided government? I think what they're saying is, see if there's anything you can agree on and do that. We understand you're going to have big arguments over your differences, but look for areas of agreement, which leads me to, to tell you how I felt the Senate ought to be run. The, the last few years, the Senate basically has been shut down. What do I mean by that? In all of 2014, the whole year, 12 months, we had 15 roll call votes on amendments, a whole year. Four of the last five years, the Senate didn't pass a budget. The law requires us to pass a budget. That's my definition of dysfunction. Not political rhetoric, but facts. That's dysfunction. So I said in January of 2014, if the American people gave us the majority, the first thing on the agenda was to end the dysfunction and let the Senate get back to work. In fact, we had more amendments on the first bill I called up on the Keystone Pipeline than all of 2014, the entire year. In other words, uh, you allowed the opposition party, the Democrats, yeah. to do amendments which had not been allowed in the previous year. Precisely. We've had over 160 amendments so far this year, most of them by Democrats. Because my view is we all got elected. We all came there to, to try to make a difference. This is a legislative body. The way you do something in a legislative body is you offer your ideas and you get a vote on it. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> we're up and running. The Senate's no longer dysfunctional. Secondly, as I indicated earlier, I felt we had an obligation to look for the things where there was the potential for agreement, even though we had plenty of things we disagreed on, look for the areas where there's potential for agreement and try to advance the ball. The Keystone Pipeline was an example of that. Now, the most important Democrat in the country didn't sign it, but a whole lot of Republicans and Democrats thought that that was an important measure, and that's how we started. We did pass the budget, which the law requires. We did the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act, which you'll see on full display here in September. The president wanted this to be an executive agreement only. He chose not to submit it as a treaty, but to be an executive agreement only. Even Democrats in the Senate were uncomfortable with having no impact on such an important matter, and so we came together on a bipartisan basis big enough to override a potential veto, and we'll have an opportunity to weigh in on that. We've done trade promotion authority. It was a very <laughs> stressful thing because Democrats these days don't like trade. The environmentalists don't like trade agreements. The unions hate them. Uh, it was a war, and it was almost an out-of-body experience <laughs> for myself 
I talked to the president a lot during that period, <clears throat> and we were the key to getting trade promotion authority in place. We've done a rewrite of No Child Left Behind. We've done a multi-year highway bill. We're going to do cybersecurity in September. So we are looking for the things upon which there is enough bipartisan agreement and yet are important enough to make some progress for the country. But something really big seems to have happened historically, which is that it used to be there was a coalitions of the center and that the parties were not so ideologically divided, nor were they sort of in the thrall or captured by their wings and their caucuses. So whether it was in the 1840s or the 1950s and 60s, you would find coalitions in the middle. What has happened to make that disappear, and hasn't that added to the dysfunctionality? Well, no, it hasn't disappeared in the Senate, or we wouldn't have been able to do the things that I just talked about. The highway bill, listen to this. This was negotiated by myself and Barbara Boxer. <laughs> you get my point here? I mean, we, we found something we had an agreement on. But do you think that, that and so in the center, the center in the Senate passed it. The center did pass it. The center passed most of the things that I referred to. There are some members in both parties in the Senate who are so partisan that they're not, frankly, interested in <laughs> doing anything in the center. But that's that's not reflective of the entire Senate. But do you think you can build on that and and? Uh, marginalize the people you say on both sides who are not uh, interested in doing anything? Well, I mean, uh, marginalize is kind of a tough term. It's hard to marginalize anybody in the Senate. <clears throat> being the leader of the Senate was described by one of my colleagues as somewhat akin to being a groundskeeper at a cemetery. <laughs> Everybody's under you, but nobody, nobody's listening. Yeah, right. Well, let me ask you a specific example that how are you, you keep saying over and over that, you know, there's no lesson in the second kick of a mule, uh, you're not going to let the government be shut down again. And yet everybody from Ted Cruz to whatever deciding that Planned Parenthood defunding is going to shut the government down. How are you going to prevent a government shutdown? Well, we're just not going to do it. I mean, the reason, what Walter... <laughs> What, what Walter was referring to is one of my old favorite Kentucky political sayings, which is that there's no education in the second kick of a mule. Mm -hmm. <laughs> my party, unfortunately, owns the brand of government shutdown. Mm -hmm. It's a bad brand. <laughs> we tried it back in the 90s uh, when we had a Republican Congress and President Clinton was in office. It was tried again in 2013. Uh, there certainly wouldn't be any education in the third kick of a mule. And the point is that when you take actions like that, that the public widely views as irresponsible and disruptive, it's not a winner politically. And Are you going to combine debt? Well, yeah, applause, please, if you want. <laughs> Are you going to combine the debt ceiling and the spending bill to try to get it all once? Well, I'm not going to negotiate it here tonight. Uh, but. I mentioned the things that we've, that we've got some agreement on and that we've been able to do so far, but there are big differences ahead of us. We're going to have big negotiations in the fall about spending. Uh, the Budget Control Act that Biden and I did 
if you were interested in reducing government spending, actually worked. We actually reduced government spending for two years in a row for the first time since right after the Korean War. But the defense hawks in my party are uncomfortable with it, want to spend more on defense, and our Democratic colleagues want to spend more on everything. So there is a restiveness about the caps. And so our Democratic uh, colleagues in the Senate refuse to let us take up any of the government spending bills, the appropriation bills, consistent with the budget that we pass, thereby forcing us into a discussion later this year about how much to spend. And there are a lot of moving parts in that. You know, debt ceiling is a part of it, defense spending, discretionary spending. I can tell you what I'd like to achieve out of it. The real problem confronting the country is not the discretionary budget. It's the entitlement side. And these are really popular things. Is these there are, a possibility are, of doing a bargain on entitlements? Yeah, let me just make sure everybody knows what we're talking about here. <laughs> we're talking about Medicare. We're talking about Social Security. Very, very popular and important programs in our country. And the baby boomers are aging, and we have a demographic problem. And unless we adjust the eligibility for these popular programs to the demographics of America tomorrow, not the life expectancy of Americans in the 30s when Social Security was passed, or the benefit level for Medicare in the 60s when Medicare was passed, unless we adjust that, there's nothing you can do to solve the problem. There are not enough health care providers you can cut to fix the problem. So what I'd love to see is a sort of Reagan, Tip O'Neill, you know, they raised the age for Social Security in 1983. They did it together. It saved Social Security for a generation. It took it off the political, out of the political debate. I ran for the Senate the first time in 1984, the year after, after the Social Security age was adjusted. Not immediately, but it's still kicking in all these years later. I was never asked a single question about it. And the reason I wasn't is the kind of bipartisanship you were talking about. They embraced something that needed to be done for the country and did it. That's the kind of thing I'd love to see come out of the fall discussion. I'm not optimistic. But uh, will, you try, will you put entitlement reform yeah. in the mix this yeah. fall? Yeah. And how many Democrats do you think would go for that? <laughs> well, that's the problem. <laughs> Well, yeah, some, you, know. you might be able to get a coalition. But no, look, I, I think that there's, honestly, with all due respect to my Democratic colleagues in the Congress, there's only one Democrat who really counts. Yeah, okay. That's the guy with the pen. Yeah. And if the president were in a position to agree to some kind of entitlement changes, most of the Democrats would go along with Have it. Have you talked to him? We, we've had plenty of discussions. On entitlement? Uh, off and on for years, yeah. We'll be talking about it again. And the reason this comes up is because my view is I'd have some flexibility on discretionary spending now in return for much more important things later. Let me give you an example. Most of you are familiar with chain CPI. It's, it's an adjustment that affects both the revenue side and the benefit side because most of these entitlement programs are fixed to this formula for automatic adjustments, which overstates 
inflation, overstates it, by simply adjusting the CPI to make it accurate, you get enormous savings in the out years. For our Democratic friends, part of the what comes out of this is more revenue. For the Republicans, part of what comes out of it is less benefit. So it kind of cuts evenly. It's about 50-50 revenue and spending reduction. But mostly, it's an accuracy adjustment. Mm -hmm. That could be a huge accomplishment for the country, probably only possible to do it when you have divided government. But the only way divided government does big things is if the person in the Oval Office who can sign something into law agrees to the deal. The presidency in our system is absolutely essential. He's the only person of the 330 million of us who can sign something into law and the only one who can deliver enough members of his party to vote for a deal that he makes to make it possible to get an outcome. So I'm not predicting that that could come out of this, but the best thing about divided government is divided government can do things that unified government cannot. Would you be willing to push something that half of your caucus was against and half the Democrats were against? Well, the Budget Control Act was about 50-50 in my party. Okay. About half of my caucus voted for it and half I would vote against it. Let me add, changing subjects. Um, when you were young and an intern, you came to Washington and somewhat just by chance got to watch Lyndon Johnson sign the Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act about 10 years ago, I think, was renewed unanimously. Now, part of the Republican brand is restricting voting rights, everything from voter IDs to whatever. Do you think that's a problem, and do you think there's some things that the Senate should do on voting rights? Well, first, I, I had been an intern in, a, in the office of a senator from Kentucky named John Sherman Cooper in 1964, and he was involved in breaking the filibuster of the Civil Rights Bill of 1964. It was a great thing for a young person uh, to be there and, and to see in all In other that. words, he, I mean, I remember, I I remember reading the, this. He supported Lyndon did. Johnson's voting and helped break a filibuster of right. Southern Democrats as well as a lot of Republicans, right? Richard Russell. Well, I, I, more Republicans voted for the Civil Rights Bill of 1964 than Democrats. Right. But, yeah, he was among the Republicans who was for it. So I, I came back the next summer to visit my friends and to hope to get to see him, and I just hit it on the day that Johnson was going to be uh, signing the Voting Rights Act. So he, I was waiting in the outer office. He grabbed me by the arm and said, come on, let's go over to the Capitol and see something important. And there I was in the back of the room when Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act, and that was 50 years ago last But do week. you worry that people on the uh, right of your party are pushing too hard to restrict voting rights no, now. Look, I, how many of you think it's offensive to have to show a photo ID to get a check cash, if anybody cashes checks anymore, or to get on an, uh, an airplane? But why uh, are you doing that? Let me finish that? here. The, the notion that photo ID at the polls is some kind of voter suppression idea is nonsense. <laughs> nonsense. And that's not just me saying nonsense. The U.S. Supreme Court upheld Indiana's photo ID at the polls six to three. That meant one of the liberal Supreme Court justices upheld it. So the notion that <laughs> ballot integrity 
ensuring ballot integrity has something to do with voter suppression is ridiculous. The Voting Rights Act is still in place. All the Supreme Court did was strike down a provision that the majority held did not apply 50 years after, which subjects certain parts of our country in the Deep South to procedures that make no sense in today's America. Haley Barber points out there are more African-American elected officials in Mississippi today than any other uh, state in, in America. Tim Scott, African-American Republican, Republican, was elected to the U.S. House by defeating Strom Thurmond's son in the congressional district that includes Fort Sumter. And he happens to be an Aspen fellow, He's by now a United States senator. Come on. All the court said was the formula that made sense in the, in the 1960s was no longer applicable. The voting, rest of the Voting Rights Act is intact, and this, you know, these suggestions that any effort to ensure the integrity of the ballot is some kind of voter suppression, in my view, is nonsense. Let me make one final point. It is also not true that there's no voter fraud around the country. I mean, I hear that all the time. In the eastern part of my state, where there are virtually no African Americans, we've got people in jail now, and now, as a result of prosecutions for voter fraud. There are certain parts of the country, certain inner city parts of the country, and certain rural parts of the country having nothing to do with race, where voter fraud has been a problem. And I think ballot integrity is entirely consistent with the Voting Rights Act. Well, I come from Louisiana, so I don't know much about you voting never, never fraud. No cheating down there. I didn't know that, that such a thing ex existed. Um, campaign finance, you've been very strong in defense of the First Amendment, saying there should be no limits on campaign finance, money being donated. Do you think it's reached a point where there's now too much sloshing around? Yeah, I don't think it's any of the government's business how much all of you choose uh, to support with your hard-earned money, whether it's a cause or a candidate. Uh, a government big enough to spend $4 trillion a year and to run up $18 trillion of, a, of debt is a government that needs to be influenced by somebody. And I've never been one of those who felt like it was the government's business to micromanage, in effect, political discourse in America. Now, here, the, the so-called, the, the case that the left chooses to demonize is called the Citizens United case, and you may have heard some talk about it. You probably don't know what the Citizens United case actually held. Here's what it held. All it did was relate to corporate speech. Before Citizens United, wealthy people could do anything they wanted to with their own money. They could go out and support a candidate or oppose a candidate with everything they had before Citizens United. Before Citizens United, if you were a corporation lucky enough to own a newspaper or a television station, you could say whatever you wanted to with your corporate money anytime you wanted to. But after Citizens United, the court said, there's no special carve-out for the media. All corporations are treated the same. Just because you own CNN, 
you don't get a you don't get any preference in how you spend your money. So it leveled the playing field for corporate speech only. Now, the aftermath of that is that not many public corporations want to do this anyway because they have shareholders, they have customers, they sell to Democrats, they sell to Republicans. So you shouldn't be alarmed that corporations are buying America. It remains the case that a corporation or a union can't give to a candidate and can't give to a party. But what the court said, if you want to go out and try to influence public opinion, it's none of the government's business. You have a right under the First Amendment to go out and, if you want to, spend everything you've got promoting whatever cause you have. And so, Walter, it is, in fact, my view that America doesn't have too little speech. Let it all break out, all over. And it is. And the reason it is, is because we have a pretty open country in which everybody can pretty much say what they want to and try to impact the course of events in America. So I think that's just as healthy as it can be. And so, no, I don't think we have too much political spending. And if you thought we did, who do you want to decide who gets to spend? You know, do you want the government to decide that you get to speak and you don't? That's exactly what will happen. That's exactly what will happen, because if you allow the people who make the rules, which are those of us who get to vote, to write the rules, we'll quiet our enemies and support our friends. And so the government ought to stay out of this to the maximum extent possible. In terms of candidates and parties, you know who supports us. There are limits on what they can give us. It's fully disclosed. You can make out of it whatever you choose to. But the rest of, of independent speech of us, let people say what they want to and try to influence the course of events. In my opinion, it makes America a healthier or a better place in the future, and I'm all for it. Okay. Thanks. Clear answer. Um, uh, you come from a coal mining state, and obviously you've objected to some of the EPA standards that are being put on coal. But is there anything we can and should be doing on climate change that you would support? Well, I certainly wouldn't argue that the climate isn't changing. I think it is. The question is, if this is a global problem, how much impact are we going to have and at what price on our own economy? Now, obviously, I'm pretty sensitive to this issue because central Appalachia is in the middle of a government-induced depression an absolute depression. Uh, it looks like the Dust Bowl uh, in the 30s, and a lot of people are hurting. The President also uh, is pursuing an agenda that was rejected by Congress. Let me say that again. He's pursuing an agenda that was rejected by Congress during his first two years when he had 60 votes in the Senate. He had a complete hammerlock on the government. It has 60, 60 votes in the Senate and a huge majority in the House and couldn't pass it. So he decided to do it anyway. And I think it's noteworthy that in the biggest case currently before the, uh, the D.C. Circuit, the coal industry is represented by Lawrence Tribe. <laughs> For those of you who don't know who Lawrence Tribe is, he was the president's constitutional law professor at Harvard. He happens to share the view of the president about, global, uh, about the climate change issue 
but he thinks there are two things wrong with what the president's trying to do. Number one, he thinks it's unconstitutional. And number two, he thinks it's a violation of the Clean Air Act of 1990. Other than that, he doesn't have a problem with it. <laughs> so if, the, if this initiative is stopped, it'll be stopped in the courts. Interestingly enough, with the lead lawyer for those who are trying to stop it, arguably the most prominent liberal constitutional law professor in America. As to the substance of the issue, regular folks, people you know, just trying to make it, have had a very rough time under this administration. The president always talks about the 1%. That's probably most of you. Uh, you guys have done great. But regular people are about $3,000 a year worse off today than they were when he came to office. These people are struggling. Paying their utility bills is a big part of surviving. These utility bills are going to skyrocket. The president himself said that. These are the, this is the collateral damage for this initiative. And finally, let me say, our country going down this path all by itself is probably not going to have much of an impact on a global problem. And it'll be interesting to see how much other countries are willing to to um, restrain their own economic growth and development in pursuit of this cause. At, at, the, top, at the front of the group, I would put China and India. But uh, going to Paris for the international conference, is there anything you would take there if you were in charge that would try to um, reduce the threat of climate change? I, I'm not going to uh, advocate policies that dramatically disadvantage ordinary people in America. Mm -hmm. um, the Iran deal. <laughs> Give me your thinking on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it won't surprise you to know that I, I don't think it's a very good deal. <clears throat> the, the president could have submitted a treaty that would have um, required two-thirds for ratification. He wanted to do an executive agreement without our involvement at all, but because of the new Senate with a more bipartisan and cooperative uh, approach, we worked together to get enough people on a bipartisan basis to at least get some say on it. So here's the way it'll work. You may already know this. As the majority leader, I would have the option of bringing up either a resolution of approval or a resolution of disapproval. I'm obviously gonna bring up the latter. That in all likelihood will pass it will pass the House. He will be able to veto that. And he can win if he can get one-third plus one in either the House or the Senate. And the House goes first on the override? Well, we haven't decided who's going to go first, Joe. Well, I thought you might tell me that. Well, <laughs> but we haven't decided yet. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, um, so this is almost all an internal Democratic issue. And the, the reason, in my opinion, the president has been so partisan in this discussion is because he knows it's only Democrats who can deliver him a victory. So he wants to demonize us. For example, we were described as somehow similar to those in the streets of Tehran shouting death to America. Pretty hot rhetoric. But if you're part of the Democratic base and the president's saying, stick with me, uh, you like stuff like that, right? I mean, that 
So I think the president's rhetoric is designed to try to appeal to hardcore Democrats to, to be loyal to him in spite of the fact that there's a good deal of resistance in their districts. So this campaign, most Americans won't see, but you will see it here in Colorado because Michael Bennett is one of the undecided Democrats in the Senate. Uh, I was up in Montana. <clears throat> there's an undecided Democrat up there, and there's, there are ads on the air. I saw one of them. So hmm. the, the, there's a major effort underway by those who oppose the agreement to get the one-third plus one, but all of those are going to be Democrats. I think in the end there will be no Republicans who support it, so it's a, it's a Democratic activity. Uh, at the Aspen Strategy Group last week, which is a very bipartisan run by you know, Brent Scowcroft and Joe Nye, Secretary Albright was there, um, there was discussion of some type of legislation that could accompany a vote, like a uh, use of force agreements, deploying uh, bombers in the Middle East, that somehow or another, if the logjam had to be broken, you could pass some piece of legislation along with the vote. Would you be open to that, and would you allow such proposed legislation to come to the Senate floor if it was proposed? I think what we ought to do is, um, I think the President's entitled to a vote on what he negotiated. But I don't think this is the last word on Iran. Let me remind you, an executive agreement can be revisited by the next president. The next president may have a very different view of whether this was a good deal or not. This doesn't have the kind of force that a treaty would. It's an executive agreement. So the next president, whoever that may be, may well want to revisit this. But I think this deal, which was so painstakingly negotiated over a period of a couple of years, deserves a response from Congress. But that doesn't mean there won't be additional legislation related to Iran. Um, the, the president actually did not want the sanctions that we gave him. Uh, the administration was opposed to the sanctions that we actually passed. But to his credit, once he got the authority to do it, he used it, and that's what brought the Iranians to the table. So I think this is not the end of the Iranian story. Um, the president wanted to transform the Middle East. Boy, he has. He has. The Saudis were in Moscow, you know, talking to the Russians about buying arms. Never thought I'd see that. So our, our friends are skittish. Our enemies are emboldened. Other than that, I don't feel strongly about this. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's a great national debate uh, that all of you are going to have an opportunity to, to tune in on. And what, what I'm going to do in the Senate, I've already told my colleagues that I think this is an issue of such magnitude that it ought not to be treated like any other bill. So I've said during the time that we're considering this on the floor of the Senate, I'm going to ask all the senators to come sit at their desk to participate in this great national debate. We're not going to have committee meetings going on at the same time and all this shuffling around in and out. We're going to treat this uh, as an issue of great national importance as it deserves to be treated and um, listen to each other. And hopefully the American people will tune in on this. They are interested in it. And it's going to be front and center as soon as we go back in starting September the 8th. Hmm.
My last substantive question will be on uh, the Affordable Care Act, which you say really does need to be repealed. But the Kentucky State Exchange, I think, is working well. Is that correct? Would you be able to find a way, if you wanted to change the Affordable Care Act, to keep exchanges where people who move from job to job could find insurance the way it's working in Kentucky? Well, let me, let me just make sure you understand how I feel about this. I, I think it was the single worst piece of legislation that's been passed in the last half century. Um, the single biggest step toward Europeanizing our country. Everything we predicted during the great debate about Obamacare has happened. Rates have gone up, co-payments have gone up, deductibles have gone up, mergers and acquisitions are going on all across the country, not only among insurance companies, but among hospitals. Everybody's getting bigger and bigger and bigger in order to deal with the fact that the government is now, even though it already had its hands full with Medicaid and Medicare, the government is now running all of American health care. If it were possible to undo this monstrosity, I would do it. The, it, the part of it that you were referring to in Kentucky, if people thought we should have expanded Medicaid, we could have done that. But that's not all it did. It expanded Medicaid, but also in order to try to get at the 40 million or so Americans who were uninsured, half of whom were young and healthy and thought they were going to live forever, and made a not entirely irrational decision not to buy it. The other half had a genuine affordability problem. So what we did is we rated Medicare for $700 billion over the next 10 years. We took out a Medicare program for the elderly in order to provide subsidies for the private health insurance market for those who couldn't afford it. So we further exacerbated the Medicare problem. It's just a nightmare. And I don't know what it's going to look like in January of 2017, but this can't possibly work out as intended. And if we, if we can get some way to, to revisit the whole thing, what we should have is a competitive health insurance market, not an overregulated health insurance market, where the, the policies that the government are specifying, a lot of people don't want. They're paying more for policies that don't meet their needs. So we've completely fouled up the private health insur insurance market. If we wanted to just cover more people, we could have just expanded Medicaid, just raised the limit uh, for Medicaid without destroying the private health insurance market. But so if you do it through the private health insurance market, should there still be an exchange where anybody who well, wants to Well, an exchange is, is, is a way to shop. Correct. I, I'm not sure about this, but I think there were a couple of states that already had an exchange mm -hmm. before Obama. Massachusetts under yeah, there's, there's nothing Romney. fundamentally wrong with having a shopping exchange, but that that that's well, where everybody has the ability to get insurance if they want. Well, 85 percent of Americans did have health insurance before Obamacare. 15 percent didn't, and of the 15 percent, half of them were young and made a not entirely irrational decision not to buy it. The other ones had a genuine affordability problem. Just how much do you want to destroy it for 85% in order to meet the other problem? Mm -hmm. And most people predict that in the end, they're still going to have plenty of uninsured people, even after all of this. So um, we could spend the whole hour on this, but th this is uh, 
this is something I think was a huge mistake for the country. And if the American people give us an opportunity to revisit it, we ought to do it. Okay. Uh, so a couple of non-policy questions, personalities. Uh, give me your take on Obama personally. <laughs> <laughs> well, it may surprise you. I like him. I think he's a very smart guy, very capable guy. He's very, very left. Um, I, I would call him the most liberal president since Woodrow Wilson. And if you're not steeped in Woodrow Wilson, uh, he thought the Founding Fathers basically got the Constitution wrong. <laughs> this was a guy who really thought we needed to do it differently. Um, the president's very much on the left, and therefore, unlike Clinton, who is more transactional and more of a deal maker, it is harder to, to meet in the middle. And the country, in my view, desperately could use a big meeting in the middle at a time of divided government in order to deal with entitlement eligibility changes that we know have to be done. So that's a disappointment. But we have been able to do some business together. I think he would tell you the Trade Promotion Authority would not have happened. But what's it like when you sit around with him? It's fine. We, uh, you know. Um, Does he lecture you? Does he? <laughs> Look, I don't have any problems with the president's uh, personality. I think he's a smart, capable guy. We just see things very differently, and it's a little bit harder to find you know, avenues of cooperation than with somebody who was you know, more flexible, shall I say, or more, more willing to move to the political center. When you go to the Kentucky Derby, there are certain years when there's just a huge field, mm -hmm. and it's really hard to figure out which lane they're going to run in. <laughs> you know where take, he's going now. Give me your take on the... Um, Demolition Derby and the Republican primaries going on. Who do you like and who do you, how do you think it may shake out? Well, well, Walter and I were talking before we came in here, and I used the Derby analogy. Um, in 2012, I don't think we had, a, my side, I don't think we had a great field. Uh, but we have a really, it's sort of like this year's Derby. There's just a lot of good horses on the track. And... Everybody, as you've noticed, is looking for some way to break through the pack. You know, you've got them all stacked up here. They've just come out of the gate, and everybody's looking for an angle. And um, so the candidates who are really bending over backward to distinguish themselves from everybody else, you know, are tempted to say pretty explosive things. <laughs> or notice me, you know, because <laughs> I'm in this uh, crowded field. Um, the same thing, to some extent, is happening on the Democratic side. Some of you may not have noticed, but there's a Democratic Tea Party now. Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders drew 28,000 people in Portland the other day. So you've got on both sides now a lot of animated, active people going into this uh, presidential election. Obviously, what I hope for is a nominee... Who can win? A nominee who can win. Because I always like to remind people that winners make policy and losers go on to some other line of work. <laughs> and uh, there are about 10 states that are going to determine who the next president of the United States is, and Colorado's one of them. If you want to be president, uh, you're not going to spend a lot of time in Texas or Kentucky. We're going to vote for the Republican. You're not going to spend a lot of time in New York or California. They're going to vote for the Democrat that there are about 10 places 
where all the money, all the action will be. And starting in the West would be Nevada, Colorado. Sometimes New Mexico is in play. The, the uh, Rust Belt states, Pennsylvania, Ohio, New Hampshire, Iowa, Florida. There are about 10 places that are going to determine who the president is. And obviously, as someone who would like to see my side win, we need to have a nominee who can appeal to voters in places like Colorado. Which, which of in the field most fits that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah, well, I got, I got four of my members running for president, and I assure you I didn't get elected unanimously leader of my party in the Senate by doing things like picking a favorite. <laughs> so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resist the temptation to do that. But um, I think it's important for us in order to be competitive in the big election, the presidential election. I mean, we're pretty competitive in Congress. We control both houses. But to win the big office, we need to do better with Hispanic Americans. Uh, the, this is not anything you don't already know, but America is certainly changing. I believe it's the case that when Ronald Reagan was elected, 84% of American voters were white. I think I read the other day that in 2016, 70% probably d will be white. Um, my party does really good with white people, and I'm proud of that. Uh, but we need to do better with other parts of our electorate. And I think the, the part of the American electorate that is the most open to us is Hispanic Americans. And they happen also to be situated in a number of these states in significant numbers. Colorado, Nevada, Florida. Florida, and a growing number of Hispanic Americans in other states, just not as big a number as in several of these key states. So um, I'd like to see us nominate somebody who you know, can appeal to, um, to that segment of the American electorate. I think we have a good shot. I like and admire Hillary Clinton, but I think her biggest problem is going to be the following. Does America want four more years just like the last eight? If I were the Republican nominee, I would say, <clears throat> if you're satisfied with where America is today, if you think this is as good as we can do, then she's your candidate. But if you think America can do better by taking a different path and going in a different direction, you should be for me. I think that's what this is going to shape up like uh, next year. I don't know how to ask this in a clever or polite way, so I'm just going to outright say, give me your take on Donald Trump and what he's doing. <clears throat> At the risk of disappointing you all, I think I'm going to take a pass on that. <laughs> but I think from everything I've said here today, you've got a pretty good idea how I feel about that. Uh, and um, you're having some real problems with another candidate who's part of your own caucus, Ted Cruz. Explain what's happening there. Well, look, <clears throat> in spite of Walter's best efforts here all right, all right. <laughs> to, to draw me into the presidential contest, I'm not going to do that. Um, they, they've all got a business model, a plan to try to break out of the pack. And much of it involves 
who do, who, do, who do you decide to attack and whether or not you think that will work. And I can't see any advantage to me getting in the middle of this and trying to decipher what everybody's motivation is. That's not, not my job. I'm the majority leader of the Senate. As a result of that, I get to set the agenda. I'm trying to advance the interests of the country as best I can and the presidential race will take care of itself without my intervention. All right, well, I, <laughs> I think I did better asking you about policy than about politics. So I'm going to open it up to people here. Yes, ma'am. Shout. <laughs> Kentucky not heeding your call? Yeah, well, we have a governor's race in Kentucky this year. We have an off-year governor's election. And so we'll have a new governor in December of 2015. And both the Democratic nominee and the, and the Republican nominee have said they're not going to file a clean power plan. Yes, sir. Senator McConnell, sir, can you talk a little bit more about the Republican brand and minorities? Republican brand and sorry, and specifically the African American community. The brand is in shambles, and um, it shouldn't be for uh, one reason that African Americans tend to be uh, more religious, more conservative, if you actually go through the data, and yet it's atrocious, the brand in that community. Why? Yeah, well, it's a great frustration, but it goes back to the 1964 election, and um, nothing is really changed since then. Um, even before the president's rise, uh, we were getting blown out by African-American voters, and we still are. I wish it were otherwise, um, but there are some very impressive African-American Republicans, including Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. And um, the, the reason I mentioned Hispanic Americans is I think they are more open to us I mean, it doesn't seem to me that this is a demographic that's kind of locked down against Republicans like African Americans are. I hope that will change, but I, it certainly hasn't been helped by having the first African American president be a Democrat. I mean, that didn't do us much good on that front, obviously. Gary? Um, I'm a venture capitalist, and I have got recently gotten some exposure to the process in Congress um, uh, of the um, uh, trying to get at the truth on whatever subject it is. Personally, it was on the subject of patent reform. I've been involved in trying to preserve the system, but there's a broader. The broad question is, um, you don't, you never have genuine debate among the experts in front of uh, of senators or their staffers. What you have is hearings where typically it's stacked in favor of, of whoever the majority is, and then they, um, the senators get to ask questions, but you don't actually have, have nobody, you can't have um, you know, the, the minority uh, group accusing the other one of saying that's not true, and it, what, you know, genuine debate tends to get at the truth better than the process that exists today, and this isn't just for patent reform. Do you have any suggestions as to how to improve yeah. that? Well, unfortunately, everybody's definition of the truth is not the same. Uh, that's a dilemma in life. Um, the, um, the majority typically has more witnesses in a typical hearing advocating its point of view than the minority. 
That was true a year ago when I was in the minority. The, it, the majority in a hearing would have more witnesses than the minority. So it's not any different than it has been before. There are a few advantages to being in the majority. You get to set the agenda. You get to decide what to have hearings on. But the way the witnesses are typically done is the minority gets so many and the majority gets so many to invite. And neither tries to tell the other who to invite, but the majority typically does have more. So I, that's no different than it was before. If it's unfair now, it was unfair in the other direction uh, earlier. Let me make sure I get in the back there, too. It's a little bit hard for me to see, but I guess there's a gentleman's hand in the middle back causing our mic runners agitation. Senator McConnell, McConnell, at what population level can the United States maintain its current standard of living are we uh, in danger of being overpopulation and it would decrease our standard of living by having our population increase much more? I think that's a paraphrase. I'm trying to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you certainly want to grow. I mean, most of the societies that are going backward are not growing, have declining population, dec declining. Um, no, I'm not just... I'm not sure I understand the question, but I, I don't think we have a disturbing population increase. Right. Yes, right there in the aisle, and then I'll catch you. And notwithstanding, okay. notwithstanding the fact that uh, both uh, Germany and um, France are trying to make uh, economic uh, approaches to um, Iran, uh, my question is this. I have a colleague uh, who is a French national and PhD in foreign affairs. And she's surprised, and she has no interest specifically in American politics, or minimal, but very in tune to French politics, especially foreign affairs. And she told me, surprisingly, that if the US rejects the um, uh, Iran pact, and the sanctions are either continued or increased, France will follow us. So what I really would like to ask you, do you have any idea what the behavior of France and Germany will be if the pact is rejected? And more broadly, do you think the sanctioned regime can be continued if this pact is voted down by France, Germany, and any other countries? Yeah, I don't know. I think we could continue our U U.S. sanctions, um, but it probably would be hard to hold together the others because they've already abandoned the U.N. sanctions. And the um, Iranians are going to be awash in cash pretty quickly. So, um, so what would then happen? Uh, nothing good. Would we have to do a military strike? Or? No, I, you know, I, I think the president wants to set this up as either right. this deal or, or war. Nonsense. Nobody's advocating that. Well, if we'd spent the last two years trying to ratchet up the sanctions instead of trying to negotiate them away, we'd be in a lot better shape in my, in my view. Are you together? Senator McConnell, thank you very much for being here today. Um, my question has to do with bipartisanship. Now, I know you just said that the Senate is working better than it was, and I'm happy for that, obviously. But as a young person, one of the things that really concerns me is how divided we're becoming as a country. And I see it all the time on the television, um, how in both parties, you know, all the um, presidential candidates are trying to prove themselves to be the most conservative or the most liberal. And frankly, I don't care. I want someone who wants 
to do something for the country and to get something done. So what do you think is happening to that group of the pragmatist politicians and how come you think they're disappearing? Like I miss those people like Ted Kennedy. Yes, he was a liberal, but he was willing to work across the aisle to get things done. And same thing with Olympia Snow or Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski. John so, Sherman Cooper. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is uh, happening and how can we fix it? Let, let me try to make you all feel better. <laughs> we, we don't have a lack of collegiality problem. There, nobody in modern times has said anything as nasty about each other as Jefferson and Hamilton said about each other. <laughs> we haven't had a single incident where a congressman from South Carolina came over to the Senate and tried to beat to death a senator from uh, Massachusetts. Uh, we've had big, raucous, partisan debates throughout the history of our country. Collegiality is not a problem. Don't worry about big debates about big issues. And we've always had huge differences but the country keeps on functioning. I think what's different now is with cable television and the internet, you're getting pounded all the time with arguments, and one of your natural reactions to all these arguments is, why can't you people get along? I'd like to disabuse you of the notion that that's a huge problem. We have had periods of great debates, great controversy, huge animosity, off and on for the history of the country. I don't think that's our biggest problem. We've got some big, big problems, but I don't think the collegiality issue is that big a deal. Um, we have a very, very passionate, involved uh, bunch of American citizens and those passions really go through the roof when you start electing a president. I mean, the fact that Bernie Sanders got 28,000 people to a rally, I mean, you couldn't pay 28,000 people to go to a politician's rally, you know? <laughs> if you paid them, they wouldn't go, is, is an amazing thing. So that tells you there are an awful lot of people sort of on the far left who think the president's sort of a closet conservative. And, <laughs> And you all are all following the, the Trump phenomenon. I mean, it, we, it's a lot of passion. We've got 330 million people. We're fortunate enough to be able to say and do almost anything we want to. There's a lot of chaos and a lot of confusion, particularly if you're paying a whole lot of attention to it. But let me tell you this about the United States Senate. I think there are basically two kinds of people in politics. Those that want to make a point and those that want to make a difference. Now, all of us, all of us from time to time need to make a point in the line of work that I'm in. But I can tell you without fear of contradiction, in terms of the Republican Conference of the United States Senate, there are 54 of us, all but a handful, go to work every day, motivated to, find, to try to find a constructive solution to a problem. And I believe that is also true on the Democratic side. And this year, as we have learned to work together better, I mean, the, the coalition that Barbara Boxer and I put together on the highway bill, 
I mean, it was a stunning combination of very conservative people in my conference and very liberal people in her, in her conference, including herself, and was a classic example of exactly what you'd like to see more of. But of course, it doesn't make much news, you know? Nobody was saying, isn't it great the Senate just passed a bipartisan multi-year highway bill? You know, one little story buried on A6 or not mentioned on cable television at all. What, what, what you see is controversy. That's what sells. It's not as bad as it appears. Um, some of the best people I've ever known are the people in the Senate who are trying to do what they think is best for the country. We may have different views about what that is, but uh, don't worry about that. I mean, I don't think that is our biggest problem, anywhere near our biggest problem. Uh, on the aisle right there, and then I'll, yeah, I'll catch you. We'll, do, we'll just, do you mind doing another five minutes to yourself? No, we're and then we're yeah. reach time, but I'll do the three of you, and that'll be it. My question uh, involves a specific part of the Iran executive agreement and the inspections and how much time is going to be given before the notification of the inspection and the uh, ability of the Iranians to delay those inspections. How much time before, let's say, somebody like uh, the new David Kay can come in and do the inspections or his team? Another weakness, uh, one of my colleagues described it, is having the ability to send in your own urine sample. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you've, you've, you've touched on one of the many weaknesses of the deal, which is why the president is having a very hard time selling this, even to extremely devoted Democrats who like him and who want him to succeed, um, I think it is a, an agreement riddled with problems. On the, on the first day the president took office or somewhere in that neighborhood, you were quoted as making the statement that your primary goal was to make sure he was a one-term president. Now you talked about him being non-transactional and so on and so forth, but Having gotten off to that kind of start, do you regret having made that statement at the time you made it? Yeah, what I regret is they cut off the rest of what I said. I didn't say it when he got elected. <clears throat> I said it a couple of years in after the House became Republican. I said, obviously, my goal would be to elect a Republican president, which probably wouldn't surprise many of you. But I said, between now and then, we need to see what we can do together. And I've mentioned three things after I said that, that I negotiated with Biden that were the biggest bipartisan deals made during that period. So Bob Woodward, who wrote a book about the Budget Control Act, pointed out the rest of my statement, which was that between now and the next election, we need to see what we can agree on, and we found three major things that we did agree on. So no, I don't apologize for it. I just uh, stick with my whole comment uh, which put it in context. And right, did you have your hand up or am I? No, okay. Um, yeah, okay, that's where it was. I hope you can make it good because it's the last question. Well, maybe not make it good, but getting back, back to Trump, which uh, I know uh, we've kind of 
skirted the issue. Um, the real question is, why all of a sudden is he so popular? My feeling is that the American people want a change. They want, they don't want status quo, they want something different. And they're angry. Senator? I, I agree with that. I think that is the reason. And um, people have, I think, much to be angry about. So I, I wouldn't argue that there are not plenty of things to be upset about. Let me what, what they'll have to decide, though, is what is the best solution to the problem? And I would point out that at various times in the last presidential election, in my, in my party, <clears throat> Michelle Bachman was ahead, Herman Cain was ahead. Um, it sort of goes up and down. And remember, the first uh, election is not until Iowa in the first week in February. And to bring us to a close, sort of building on that, but in a larger way, the Senate has been more functional. But do you feel that there has been a polarization and an ideological one where the parties got divided ideologically in a way unlike we've had before that's caused by everything from cable TV to redistricting to maybe money in politics. I know you don't agree with that part of it. And what is the way out of people feeling so frustrated that both on the left and the right they just want to lash out at the dysfunctional system? Well, look, I, I think the best thing people like, like myself can do is to try to do my work, to try to make progress for the country, um, and to not measure your success by how people may feel about institutions at any given time. Congress rarely has a high approval rating anyway. It's pretty low. Uh, John McCain, who has a wicked sense of humor, says we're down to paid staff and relatives. <laughs> So I think the best thing to do is to is is to is to, to to go to work, to try to deal with the problems that the country confronts as best as best you can, and not lay awake at night, uh, worrying about the fact that a lot of people don't like you. I mean, if if you're um, if you want to be loved, the profession I'm in is not a good direction to take. Um, <laughs> So I think you do your best, and if you're in an election contest, if you can satisfy 51% of the people who feel that your best was good enough to give you another term, you'll get another term, and if you don't, you won't. So I'm not, you know, all wrought out about all of this. Uh, this is a great country. You don't need to be reminded of that by me. Um, we are free, we are open, we debate all these issues, we get passionate about them, but in the end, we generally do the right thing. And so maybe a good way for me to close uh, was to give you my take on how I view the last six years. Winston Churchill, who said a lot of things that we all love to quote, once said this about us, about Americans. He said, you know the Americans, they always do the right thing after they've tried everything else first. <laughs> And so that's kind of how I look at the last six years. <laughs> From my point of view, we've been sort of trying something else. But typically, you know, 
we figure out what the problem is, we do the best we can to fix it, and we move ahead. I mean, it's no accident that we're still the greatest country in the world. We haven't lost any of that. And so I'm still upbeat and optimistic about the future of America, and I hope you will be too. And for all of our problems, for all of our problems, you know, we don't have a bunch of Americans trying to leave this country. <laughs> you know, this is a great place to be. And the fact that we can have events like tonight and discuss these issues in an, in an open and intelligent way is an, another positive thing about, about the future. So thank you all for being here tonight. Senator Mitch McConnell, thank you very much. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbow. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees. Stitcher Smart Radio app, Audible, and Spotify. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making.